think that's it. There we go. Well, good evening. Um, we are looking at how the New Testament exemplifies the moral obligations of the third commandment tonight. And as always, I do not preach with a jacket because I am hot-natured. And just to remind ourselves of this third commandment, it states this: "You shall not take the Lord, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Last week, it was illustrated that this commandment primarily concerned loyalty to God, loyalty to His revealed word, His covenant, His promises, and His commandments. This was shown through how Israel was to deal with the disloyalty of false prophets and blasphemers and how Israel was to be absolutely loyal or devoted to God, especially in light of their status as the sons of God. This same pattern of forsaking disloyalty and embracing devotion is repeated for us in the New Testament, and we find this pattern in the letters of Peter. For this evening, we will be in 2 Peter 3. And to introduce this chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's intention in his letter as a whole is to juxtapose true apostolic teaching with the false teachings of those who have risen among the ranks of the church. True prophetic utterances and apostolic teachings are not man's mere opinions or interpretations about what God has said, but the express activity. It is the express activity through God's activity in history or by revelation of the Holy Spirit. Conversely, false teaching has no basis in the authoritative word of God, in God himself. There was no revelation. False teaching merely came from men, driven by their own desires to stir up controversy and to give themselves a leeway into their own sin. In chapter 3, Peter restates these things that his audience might know how to deal with the specific false teaching of doubting the return of Christ. In chapter 3, we see three broad sections that will be our rough points for tonight. So for those who are taking notes, these sections will be uh, blasphemy will come, verses 1 through 7. Blasphemy must be corrected, verses 8 through 13. And correction leads to holiness, verses 14 through 18. So let us read our passage and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. 2 Peter 3, the whole chapter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first and foremost, that scoffers will come in the last days, with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire." being kept until the day of judgment and and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which, the right, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks to them on these matters. There are some things that are, that are things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and the day and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God, and that you have given us this word to prepare us to be mindful, to be ready for the things that we are about to speak of tonight. Lord, we ask now through this message and through the various means that you have given us to be prepared, to help us to take stock of where we are spiritually and help us to be built up so that we might defeat the strongholds of Satan in this world. Lord, we ask that you would prepare us now through the sermon, through the various other means, through us being disciplined, through this uh, formative discipline of the preaching of the word, that we would indeed be faithful to you and loyal to you, and thus keeping the third commandment. Lord, we look to you tonight that you might sanctify our worship, sanctify our ears, and sanctify these words in the perfect, perfect, perfect work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, we ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. So, for our first point, blasphemy will come, verses 1 through 7. So, for these verses 1 through 7, I want to quickly comment uh, upon what is taking place here. In verses 1 and 2, Peter gives us his purpose for writing. He wrote because he wants to bring to remembrance the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord. The particular comment of both the predictions and the commandment concerns scoffers or mockers, another word for them, coming in the last days. What Peter is doing here is that he is reminding his audience of what they have already been taught. Blasphemers, false prophets, and mockers will arise to oppose and shake the foundations of the Christian faith. Peter seems to be intimating that this opposition arose because these scoffers had this incorrect expectation concerning Christ's second coming and the renewal of the earth. In verse 4, in verse four Peter repeats their accusation. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the, from the beginning of creation. 
You see, these scoffers were complaining because the new heavens and the new earth that they were promised were not getting here quick enough. Most likely, this presumption stemmed from a failure on their, their part to appropriate the entirety of the apostolic teaching. They selectively chose what they wanted to hear, like heaven on earth, but not the call for a holy life. For these scoffers, because everything was the same as it always has been, is the same as it's always been, they did not see the reason to live in a holy manner. In their eyes, they thought, if God isn't coming down, then why should I be devoted? What's the point of living like this if there is no immediate benefit for me? This is why Peter utilizes God's judgment as a response to these scoffers in verses 5 to 7. By the word of God, the world was made, but it was also destroyed by God's word. And we see in verse 7 God's word of judgment. With the same veracity and the same power that came upon those on the day of the flood, God's word of judgment will also come upon the final day of judgment. But not with water, but with fire. Those who reject God's full revelation and choose the godless life will bear the penalty of their sins. For those who mock and reject the benevolent word of God, they will receive the word of eternal condemnation that they so conveniently overlook. And to help us put this all together, in verses 1 to 4, we see Peter develop a pattern of how blasphemy and scoffing was to be dealt with in the early church. We see that clear teaching is presented, and then scoffers arise and find a supposed error in this teaching. And then third, there is this need to have the clear teaching rebuke the the scoffer's supposed error. Also, we need to note that these scoffers understood something about Christian theology. They are ones that had connected the dots of the faith. In 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 2, we see Peter say that false teachers were among you, meaning the church. And that many, meaning the church, will follow their sensuality. The scoffers, the mockers, the blasphemers. As will become clearer later on, those, these scoffers should be understood as those who were among the church, had fallen into error and sin, and were now promoting this error as an objection to what the apostles had clearly taught. And brothers, we need to learn from this. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap that just because we have a great theological system, just because we're reformed, just because we get it right, we will never experience apostasy from members from among this church. We should note this. These false teachers were men who had learned from the very voices of Paul and Peter in the setting of the early church. For us, it's easy for us to think of the time, this time period, as the golden age of the church, when the church was at its peak. But even in the good old glory days, there was great turmoil when it came to apostasy. And so it will be for us. Blasphemy, apostasy, and disloyalty to God will mark not only the church abroad, but even the church at home. And when confronted with opposition from those who are among us, those who have been among us and have loved us, we need to remember Peter's purpose for writing. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he wrote to remind us, the church. He wrote to remind the church that this phenomenon of apostasy will come. 
This phenomenon of apostasy, of apostasy was foretold by the prophets and the apostles. And we should remember this warning so that we are not shaken in our confidence of what God had truly said, of what He has promised us in Christ. Now, I'm about to give an illustration that might seem trivial, but it's very important for the younger generation. So parents, I want you to pay attention as well. As a stereotypical millennial, you may laugh. Um, As a stereotypical millennial, most of my news comes from YouTube, uh, the video sharing platform on the internet. I go there to find the daily news, primarily the morning talk shows about the current news cycles. But there's a particular channel that often comes up when searching for the news and is marketed as a family-friendly channel, primarily to young middle school uh, and high school age students. This show typically involves two silly internet hosts talking about the news of the day or doing viral internet challenges to impress their audience. It's basically the internet equivalent to Regis and Kelly for our older audience. But in the last two weeks or so, these two particular hosts, there's been this particular episode of these hosts discussing spiritual issues and their religious background. These hosts, being from the Bible Belt, grew up in the evangelical subculture. And in college, they participated in a well-known Reformed campus ministry. In fact, they even served as missionaries uh, for a short time. As these hosts gave their credentials of how they served, uh, and, or how they were so versed uh, in the Bible and devoted to the things of God, they eventually transitioned to why they no longer believe in the Christian faith. Typical challenges arose for them. Issues of modern science start to poke holes in their foundation of the faith. So these hosts go through the evidence of evolution in the human genome and the evidence from the geological record uh, that seem to dismantle the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And they provide more evidence about the hist- uh, against the historicity of the Exodus, against the Canaanite conquest, and many other important historical biblical events. Eventually, their attention drew to the historicity of the gospel in the New Testament. To these once very devout internet hosts, to these once very devout Christian reformed missionaries, the Jesus of the Bible became religious propaganda. Jesus was a real man, yes, but he was no God-man. The deity of Christ was the mere creation of his early disciples to reconcile with the fact that they had to keep the Jesus movement going even though he's dead. And they even went on to share how their waning allegiance to the evangelical faith began to make them more sympathetic, more loving to those who didn't share their beliefs, like the Hindu, like the Muslim, or the atheist. It was once... They were outside the Christian worldview. Once they said, you know what, I'm just going to take a break from this for a minute. That they were able to see clearly the amazing gift that is this singular, momentary life. So not only were their arguments against the faith intellectual, they were also moral and emotional. They no longer had to believe that a good person, quote unquote, had to live in eternal torment because they believed differently from the Christian faith. They didn't have to reject those in the LGBTQ plus community because their God saw their lifestyle as a sin. 
Since they don't have to be committed to this Christian worldview, to this Christian God, to this Christian Bible, they are free to choose to love whoever they wanted completely and openly. This is what very many young children are watching daily, parents. And I hope you're listening Because I'm sure that some of your children will come across videos like this as they get older. Imagine that your 12 or 13 year old child came across these things. What about when they get into college or are in more direct interaction with these things? Personally, as I watched them, and it was a long time, so I devoted myself to watching a bunch of YouTube videos for this sermon. Uh, You're you're welcome. Uh, Personally, I was riveted by these two hosts. I was riveted by them. They spent a long time going through these things and showing that they thoughtfully engaged with the material and that it meant giving up an entire worldview that grounded them personally, that they were devoted to this thing called Christianity. They did not want to give it up. Brothers, these men, they look like a lot of people that we would break bread with. These were reformed evangelical missionaries that now denied the God that they once loved and worshipped. These were men that we could have broken bread with. And now they deny the God that unified us. For those who have been in the faith for a while, this is jarring for us. But what about our children? What about our children who have never experienced any kind of intellectual opposition such as this? Or have not interacted with genuinely kind individuals outside of the Christian faith? How will they respond? Brothers, this is why we must be reminded that true opposition will come. Thoughtful and articulated opposition will come. The question is, will we be prepared to interact with these things? And will we respond biblically or will we put our heads into the sand or put our fingers in our ears and say, no more, I don't want to hear it when your children are not as wise. Brothers, Peter gives us this warning that we might be prepared beforehand and to know what is coming. In his first epistle, Peter exhorts the church to honor Christ, to honor Christ By what? By being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 Brothers, opposition will come. But it won't always look like the caricature of Joel Olstein or Richard Dawkins. And I would argue that we will experience more and more opposition like these two silly internet hosts. People who looked like a lot like us, believed a lot like us but got carried away with simple arguments and the cultural zeitgeist of the day. When this opposition comes, will you be prepared to give a reason why Christ is still seated at the throne of your heart? Will you be prepared to explain this to your children? Will you know where to go? Will you know the scriptures? Moving on to our second point. Blasphemy must be corrected. Verses 8 through 13. Peter does not only warn us of the eventual blasphemy and apostasy of false teachers, but he also shows us how to correct them. In verse 5, he illustrates that these false teachers purposely overlooked a key biblical and theological point. 
Literally, they want to hide the biblical point of God's judgment. They hide this biblical point because it gave them a confidence to mock God's timing of fulfilling His promise without fear of incurring judgment by their scoffing. But just because they ignore this reality, it does not mean that God's judgment won't come upon them. In verses 5-7, through Peter is illustrating that these scoffers purposely overlooked this key point that was intended to keep them from making such a loose and foolish critique of the Christian faith. If these scoffers had understood the whole counsel of God as it was properly taught by the apostle, as it was fully taught, and approached it with humility and respect worthy of God's honor, worthy of God's word, then these scoffers would not dare approach God in this way or His word in this way. You see, they should have understood these things. But the thing is, is that they didn't want to search out these things from a point of faith. They didn't want faith-seeking understanding. And if they didn't want to accept biblical epistemology, if they don't want God's way of understanding what was going on around them, if they didn't want to submit themselves to the clear teaching of the Word of God from the apostles themselves, then they weren't going to get their answer. In fact, they were going to get the answer that they so conveniently overlooked. They would incur judgment. But note this, brothers. In verses 8 through 13, Peter gives his audience, the church, a further clarification. If verses 5 through 7 are Peter's critique of the scoffer's theology, then verses 8 through 13 are Peter's exhortation of how Christian theology is to respond to blasphemers, mockers, and apostates. It was the, the defense and the offense, to put it in rough terms. In verse 8, we read, but, knew not, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Just as scoffers needed correction in their theology, Peter wants the church to have the full understanding of what God had revealed. In this particular instance, Peter wants his church, the church, to have a better understanding of Christian eschatology, their theology of the last days, and how it relates to the glorious, complete renewal of the entire cosmos in which the righteous will inherit. God is not slow in our estimate. Or I should say, God is slow in our estimate, maybe to our eyes, to our faculties. But this delay in both eschatological judgment and renewal should be regarded as God patiently saving His church. For God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. And note those words in verse 9. God is patience, patient toward you. He's talking to the church there. He's patient toward you. Not wishing that you should perish, but that all among the household of the faith should reach repentance. I believe with, the, with these words, Peter is saying that even for those who have fallen away from the church, or those who are tempted to fall away from the church, those who are still among the body, but they had not been fully called out, you should say, is that he's trying to extend to them that God's mercy still extends to you. Even though that you have believed a lot, my mercy still extends to you for now. Even for those who have been, may have backslidden into sin and unbelief, that now with the lenses of good, corrected theology, with the correction of a loving uh, uh, apostle, God is lovingly calling them back to truth and salvation. 
In verses 10 through 13, Peter underscores both the blessing that awaits for those who know and are devoted to Christ and the reality that that this present evil age will be exposed before the Almighty God. With these lenses of good and true theology, Peter exhorted the church and possibly those who have been given ear to these scoffers, those who might be tempted away from the truth to remain faithful to their God by shirking apostasy and unbelief and by living holy, godly lives as their God had commanded them in Scripture. Brothers, Peter's example is incredibly helpful for us, especially as we consider where we are as a church and what we have been studying. Last week, Pastor Wayne gave the charge to prepare for evangelistic outreach in the coming weeks. This neighborhood has families like so many others within the subculture of Southern evangelicalism that grew up going to church, participated in church events, and may have at been one point very devout in their lives, but now no longer darken the door of a church. There can be a variety of reasons for this. They had a bad church experience. They feel ashamed for not coming back in so many years. Or they could have intellectual and moral qualms with what the faith teaches. Brothers, we need to be prepared for tough questions in this neighborhood. We need to be prepared for uh, difficult questions in order to correct the errors of those who have left the faith. Those who very well may be among us in this neighborhood. So in order for us to keep the third commandment and be faithful to our God in this context as a church at Castle Woods, now Grace Baptist Church, we need to prepare emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually for proclaiming the gospel. But not only do we need to be devoted to our God when engaging the lost, we need to, be, we need to have devotion to God for our own sakes so that we aren't lured away from the faith when engaging with the lost. In the previous illustration, those ex-Christian missionaries talked about how they share the faith. They had a good evangelical definition of the Bible. The Bible is inerrant, infallible, and the authoritative Word of God written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's a passing definition. That's pretty good. They believed that the Bible was the objective truth. Everything that that it taught had to be true, objectively. But when these so-called Christian missionaries got to those difficult questions of modern science, you start to see the theology of the Bible break down in their minds. You see, they wanted to prove the Bible was objective truth by using means outside of the Bible to validate what the Bible is. They wanted to provide archaeological evidence for the Exodus. They wanted to provide science behind God's unique creation of Adam and Eve and to validate the flood narrative with geological evidence. By using this evidence, they were seeking to bolster their claim that the Bible is objective truth. And this is where they go wrong. You see, because they had an unfaithful and sub-Christian understanding of how we prove the Bible to be the Bible, how it's the Word of God, it is no wonder how quickly they abandoned it how quickly they abandoned the faith. By putting the Bible under the naturalistic philosophy of their reason and scientific endeavors, they inverted the biblical understanding of how the Bible proves itself true. The problem with the way of proving the Bible, the only problem with proving the Bible this way, is that the Bible is self-authenticating itself. It does not need us to validate whether it is true or not. 
If the Bible teaches that it is true, then it is true, period. The Bible does not need us to try to bolster its veracity or its authority by putting our reason above it and putting it underneath a microscope to see whether it is true or not. In fact, to place our reason above Scripture is to invert the biblical pattern of acquiring knowledge. The biblical pattern of knowledge is faith-seeking understanding. Our knowledge must start with a place of faith. That is, trust in the inherent veracity of God's Word. And if we still have questions, if we still have problems, if we're still trying to figure things out, then we start from the place of faith to find those answers. Not trying to say, oh, you know, I need to figure this out first. That's not going to help, brothers. If we revert to the modernistic approach of understanding seeking faith, as these apostates did, we will end in unbelief. Why? Because unbelief always breeds more unbelief. When it comes to the Bible, you either come to it in faith or on its own terms. There is no neutrality when it comes to our God and to His Scriptures. Brothers, this is just one of very many points that we will have to tackle as a church and to be prepared. People are smart. These are college-educated adults and families. I'm not saying that you have to be a rocket scientist, but will you be able to give a, res- a reason, a response, a defense? Brothers and sisters, when we begin to evangelize in the coming weeks, and as we engage with error and blasphemy from these doors, we need to be prepared to answer objections like this to the faith and stand firm in our faith. We need to stand firm in our devotion to God to persuade them and to solidify ourselves in the faith. And this is one of the major reasons why the third commandment is so important in evangelism and in the defense of the faith. Our personal devotion is commanded so that we might not fall into sin and judgment. But our devotion is also for the purpose that we should actively seek to destroy the strongholds of Satan in these homes around us. For those who have been faithless and disloyal to their God in these homes, we must engage them biblically with gentleness and respect, but also with an unwavering devotion to God and to His Word. Not only should we seek to be devoted in purity and holiness before our God, not only should we take this seriously, we should be seeking others, keeping ourselves from error and unbelief, but we should be exhorting others to do the same. We have been called to magnify our God's name in this commandment, in the third commandment, but we have been called to bring others back into this great and worthy task of worshiping the one true God in Christ. So then, brothers, let us follow the pattern of our Lord, preaching the gospel in complete trust that God will bring his people home. Brothers, God has given us a great task in this commandment. Will you be devoted to him or will you flee? Be devoted to your Lord. Our third point, correction leads to holiness. Verses 14 through 18. In these verses, Peter illustrates how the church should respond to both the promise of heaven on earth and the sober reality of Christ's coming judgment. He states in verse 14, 
since you are waiting for these realities, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In verses 15 and 16, he restates that apostasy and blasphemy is a present evil and that it will distort the apostolic teaching and tradition, primarily Paul in this example. But in verse 17, he repeats again his warning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand about false teachers and blasphemers, about mockers, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In light of all his repeated warnings and explanations, Peter ends his apostle with this command, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's pattern and expectation for the church should be ours as well. In light of the growing blasphemy and apostasy and mockery of the faith in our day, we need to hear the Bible's warnings to be prepared. And 2 Peter is not an isolated book on this particular matter. All throughout the New Testament, we see God's inspired writers exhorting and warning the church audience to be on guard. All throughout the New Testament, the warnings against unfaithfulness and apostasy is followed, is always followed by the command to grow in holiness and knowledge of Christ. What we see here is that correction in doctrine and conduct always serves to lead the church to greater knowledge of God's grace and to reflect that grace in our devotion and holiness. Or put in other words, the New Testament is immediately concerned with the church's continued observance of the third commandment. Be devoted to me. Magnify my name, no matter the cost. We are to be constantly striving in our devotion and loyal to to our God and His Word by forsaking all that would possibly hinder us in this great task, just as we saw last week. And I want to end on this point, brothers. In verse 14, the church is called to strive in holiness and peace. And in verse 18, the church is to grow in grace and knowledge of our God. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter states that the, this about the church. And follow this carefully. This is 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. Speaking of the church. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. And for the purpose of that, what's the purpose of your status as this? That you may proclaim. Literally, to speak loudly the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So with this in mind, brothers, what Peter is doing here at the end of 2 Peter is reminding the church of their status as God's covenant people. Peter wants his people to grow in the grace that they already know and have received. Just as we saw last week, Israel was uh, was called the sons of the Lord your God. And they were to reflect God in their unique way of life. But for Peter, but for Peter, the church is the new Israel, called by God to proclaim God's glorious salvation. Essentially, Peter is commanding the church to keep doing what they do as God's people, growing in devotion to their God and reflecting that devotion to the outside world. Brothers, this call to holiness and grace is great, uh, and to grow in grace-led devotion is simply the Christian path of discipleship, is it not? 
What does discipline look like in the Christian context? Isn't it just looking more and more like Jesus in the example for us, in his example for us? Isn't it simply being devoted more and more in body and in spirit to the things that God would have us to do? And if this is the case, shouldn't we give ourselves more and more to the things that God has given us to grow in holiness and grace? We should read our Bibles, come to be with God's people on His day. We should pray and sing praises to God. We need to be under the instruction of the Word and seek to understand in fuller detail what our pastors have to teach. We also have Sunday school where we can learn in more position about particular passage or theological topics. John is doing a great job and we need to take heed of that. All these things are for our benefit. All of these things that God has given us so that we, God has given us these things at Grace Baptist that we might be better equipped to exercise our gifts that God has so wondrously lavished upon us. And those gifts include going out, being prepared, and proclaiming Christ because we are devoted to Him and to the magnification of His great name. Brothers, if the third commandment is about devotion and loyalty to God, then we must be disciplined through the means that God has given us. If we are to stand firm in our faith, to engage this lost and dying world, and to proclaim Christ to even the most fervent opposition, we must learn from the school of Christ. In other words, we must do what we are. We must do what we are. This means that we are God's renewed people and that we are inherently a devoted and grace-led people because we know of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And this is the case, and it is. Let us grow and develop into full maturity what God has already made us. Let us become more of what we already are. Let us become more of the sons of God. Let us become more of God's church, His beloved church. If we are to hear our call to faithfully proclaim proclaim Christ in this neighborhood and beyond, then let us shirk apathy for the things of God and commit our passions, our wills, our devotions, our affections for God's glory and His kingdom. And as we pursue this great endeavor and grace-filled devotion, may we grow in our devotion to God's third commandment as we go into these neighborhoods as God's chosen, as God's redeemed, as God's Spirit-led people, may our anthem be as Peter's here. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let us pray.